This is Unfiltered with James O'Brien, exclusively on Joe. Brought to you by the London Block Exchange, the official home of cryptocurrencies. Hello and welcome to the eighth episode of Unfiltered. Crikey, when we started, I didn't even know we'd get this far. And it uh, offers me an opportunity, for, for the first time I can remember in ages actually, of interviewing another journalist of of my own generation, Krishnan Guru Murphy, now of course of, of Channel 4 News, but for anybody even close to my age, a, a face that you'd associate with, with TV. Actually, I'm not quite sure when he started. Newsround can't have been his first job, so well, that's, that's how we will begin the interview, I think. Hello and welcome to episode eight of Unfiltered, where for the first time I can remember in a very long time, um, I'm going to be interviewing a fellow journalist, uh, Krishna Gurumathi, who's one of the most familiar faces in news broadcasting in Britain. And when, when I started doing a bit of digging, Krishna, into, into your background, I, 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 I marveled slightly at just, just how long you've been in the game. You're two years older than me. So in 1988, I was 16. I was in I was in digs in Chalton Cum Hardy during the school holidays, try, trying to get laid and score weed, both for the first time, it would have been. You, however, were already presenting discussion shows on television. How did I that I started happen? when I was 18, <laughs> yes. Um, having, having done a lot of school debating, basically. And actually, Manchester Youth Theatre at Chalton Cum Hardy. Yes, that's um, where I was. Uh, and, and sort of hanging out there. Did you and do that? I did that, yes. Wait, I was what, in, you must have been there in 87 then? 85, I think. Shut up. I was there. Yeah, Are you serious? 15, but that, yes. that brilliant introduction was about Manchester Youth. <laughs> that's what I was doing in 1988 well, in Chalton. Well, this is going to be an amazing. <laughs> and it made the bromance begins. So that gave um, you a taste for, you had the show off jeans. Yeah, I had a lot of show off jeans and I was very into politics and drama. And that's what my mum and dad sort of really encouraged, even though they desperately wanted to me, me to be a doctor. Like your dad. Um, like my dad. Dad and like my granddad as well and um and i so I, I applied to do medicine but i took a year off and in my year off i wrote to the bbc and asked for some work experience um in bbc scotland where i had been a member of an audience in a youth discussion program called open to question which used to invite sort of 15 and 16 year olds to grill politicians and public figures and i've been doing that as a sort of as guest you know since about the age of 15 16 going up every every few months to to be in the audience and i was a sort of the lippy one they could rely on um so if it dried up they could say krishnan and they'd know that i'd have something to say excellent so i wrote to them and said can i come and work for you and they said no but you can come and spend a couple of weeks and at the end of the couple of weeks they said actually we're looking for a new presenter for that show we want to screen test you they put me in the studio and offered me a two-series contract fantastic so, I mean, did you go to university? Yeah, I mean, I, I did it for a year full time. I worked for youth Just programs. pause, actually, because that happened really easily. That, that I mean, that, didn't it? I mean, yes. that, 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 that I didn't realise that. It was incredibly easy. Was I mean, no I was period. suddenly presenting a yes. programme on BBC Two aged 18. So you never had a period of staring at the screen thinking, why can't it be me? Why can't <laughs> no. it be me? No, I mean, I couldn't really believe it. It was very much right place, right time. And they had their eye on me, I guess. Yeah, and sure. So, um, uh, so um, the, the first show I did was with Jimmy Savile. Was it really? And the second show I did was with John Prescott. And um, and we actually ran quite a lot of that Jimmy Savile programme on Channel 4 News after the scandal broke because it was very prescient. Because he was, he was a sort of a horrible, creepy man who freaked out all the kids in the audience who were talking to him about his sexual morality. And he was being very defiant about it. Because we forget, but back then, people he used to brag about the number of people he slept with. Mm. And, and how uh, unsuable he was. Yes. He? he used to talk about the uh, one newspaper buying his new kitchen when they tried to 
well, these these kids really went for him about it, and uh, and it was a very sort of revealing program, um, which is on YouTube now. And so we we looked back at it and went, wow, this actually tells you quite a lot about the man. Why, why do you think? How do you think now, with the benefit of twenty twenty hindsight, he got away with so much for so long? Well, I mean, it's really interesting thinking now, isn't it, about Spacey and yes. all these things? You know, that's. I guess people hear things but don't dig and just kind of look away and think, well, you know, I don't really know what's going on there, something dodgy. I think things are changing now. Yes, I, I don't think that will happen any, anymore. Mm. But in those days, it was just a kind of, you know, he's weird. And I, I never heard any of that really gruesome stuff, but I, I do remember hearing, you know, some absurd rumours that I just kind of dismissed and thought, yes. well, that can't be true. Um, and I, I remember seeing Janet Street Porter actually on Question Time saying, well, we all knew this was all going on. And I'm not really sure I believe all of that. I'm not no. really sure everyone really did know what was going on. I think I think there were lots of rumours going around that people didn't really... He was clearly a bit suspect. But no, the scale, the scale wasn't really appreciated no. or understood. So um, we've, we've, we've jumped straight in at 18. Can we go back a little bit further and then we'll head off to, to, to um, university? You grew up in Lancashire. Yeah. Um, you, did you have an accent as a kid? A bit. If you see the first shows that I did, you can tell that I came from the north. It just kind of ironed out with yes. time because I... I went to live in Scotland for a year, and then I was at Oxford for three years when I went to university. I did go to university. Um, and then I've lived in London ever since. So, you know, I never had a very strong accent. I went to a sort of a relatively uh, posh school for Blackburn. It was a day, you know, it was a private day school then. It's now actually a free school. Mm. Um, and it was originally a grammar school, but it was a good school. And I never had a very strong accent, but you could tell I was from the North. Um, and, and it just kind of went over time. Growing up, big family, kind of. I have an elder sister who's at the BBC and a younger brother who's quite a lot younger than me, seven years younger than me. He lives in New York. And we lived in a big house um, outside a grim northern town. Um, in, a, in fact, I did a piece about it for the election for Channel 4 News in 2015 where I did a bike ride across the north of England and went to my old village where we grew up. I mean, I grew up for uh, you know the latter part of my childhood in a village called Barraford, which was a sort of a, a nice almost exclusively white village a couple of miles outside Nelson and Burnley where there were very big ethnic minority communities that had nothing to do with me really. I mean, my sure. dad was sort of a, uh, an Indian doctor and we were sort of, we were the one um, Indian family in the village. In fact, you know, they used to joke about our house being the house at Wog Corner. They really? And, uh, and how did you, I mean, you have to kind of go along with it, do you at that age? Well. I think I wasn't, I wasn't that aware of our neighbours and the people in the village being at all racist. I, say. I mean, I was, I, I encountered racism as in, you know, groups of, uh, you know, skinheads in those days and name calling. And I've walked through Burnley Town Centre with my dad, who's been spat on, really? while I've walked next to him. Um, Coming over here, treating our sick. Exactly, exactly. Um, and so I'd encountered racism like that, but I, I was never, I was never really sort of aware of it from the neighbours. But I think I was probably a bit naive, or, or possibly lucky. Or yeah, lucky, yeah. No, I, don't, I don't think it was particularly overt. Sure. So school, you said in two thousand and fourteen at BAFTA, the one piece of advice you'd give your teenage self would be that you don't know everything. So is that a sort of tacit admission that when you were eighteen and you just landed your year-long contract? 
it, perhaps you did think you knew everything. Yeah, I was incredibly confident. I mean, to go on TV, <laughs> aged 18, with absolutely no experience interviewing cabinet ministers and public figures and all the rest of it, you've got to have the confidence of an 18-year-old where you kind of think you can do anything. Yes. And I used to think, I used to look at David Dimbleby and go, yeah, I could do that. <laughs> uh, and... And that's what I think gave me that ability to just go on and do it. And, you know, after a while you've done it and you realise how little you know, and that's when you then learn your craft. That's but you at stop, the time, you know, growing. it's good fun. So, 18 years old, TV show, uh, why only a year and why then university? Did, was this because your parents wouldn't contemplate the possibility of you not getting a degree of some sort or, or because, or because the, the presenting job had come to a natural conclusion. No, pretty much. I mean, pretty much, uh, you know, I was brought up to go to university. I was going to be a doctor. I was still going to be a doctor initially. Oh, so it was and still it was medicine? Only, as a Yeah, it was only after doing that first day's recording that I thought, actually, this is what I really want to do. And I changed my mind. And so I then wrote to Oxford and said, I don't want to do medicine anymore. I want to do PPE. And they said, okay, but you're going to have to come and interview for it and um, and apply again. How, how did mum and dad greet, greet the change of lane? They were they were pretty concerned, but okay, because I was still doing a degree. But, you know, for years and years and years, they carried on saying, you made a terrible mistake and it's not too late <laughs> to, to go back. I mean, my dad used to say, it's not too late to go to medical school all the way through my 20s. And it was really only until I got the job at Channel 4 News when I was 28. Still relatively young. Yes. And... And he went to a conference, he went to a medical conference and somebody came up to him and saw his name badge because he's already called, also called Krishnan and said, are you related to Krishnan Gurumurth from Channel 4 News? <laughs> and, and he sort of came home and told me this story with great fun. And, and, and that was the point at which he kind of said, OK, you know, I get it. You've got a reasonable job. And, and it's a career, which perhaps telly doesn't look like a career to outsiders sometimes. I, I'm still not sure it's a career. No, I'm still not honest. sure it's a career. Um, so right. no, I don't. And I don't think he thought it was a career. He, always, he thought, no, what he thought was, OK, you're doing quite well at this very precarious thing. So I get that you want to carry on and you don't want to be a doctor anymore. And we used to have arguments in those days about the use, usefulness of what I was doing. Okay. And he used to basically say, it's kind of a bit stupid, isn't it, what you do? You don't really do anything proper. Um, and, and I would say, well, no, you know, journalism, uh, you know, fulfills a, a, a vital cause, you know, in, in democracy and a role, it has an important role. And that's what I want to do. And I want to reveal things and I want to change the world and do all of those things. And we'd argue about it. And, he, you know, and he would say, well, OK, I saved somebody's life today. What did you do? You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, but OK, you win. You know, yeah. <laughs> Forget all the days when he just looked at bunions and verrucas yeah. and stuff like that. Just the one, the day that he saved the life. Is he proud of you now? Yes, uh, you know, they, you? they were very good. And, they, you know, if it wasn't for them, I wouldn't be doing this because they were the ones who pushed me into an interest in politics and debating and drama and all of that. And we were that family who used to argue about all this stuff around the kitchen table every day. And we still do. D d does he show pride in you? Does he demonstrate it? It's that yeah. generation of man doesn't always. Yeah, no, I think he does now. I mean, um, they were they were incredibly supportive parents, I think. And... But but also sort of critical and a bit embarrassed kind of thing. So, you know, we're we're not sort of we're not we're not generally a family who are very good at sort of being demonstrative right. demonstrative about how well each other have done. And I probably inherited that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I know he's proud of me. You're not in any doubt. He doesn't. He doesn't still hope secretly that you might change your mind and no. return to medicine. <laughs> no, and I think he knows I'd have been a lousy doctor. <laughs> <laughs> Briefly, then, was journalism's gain theatre's loss? Were you? Did you have a thespian? Theatre's loss. Did you want to be an actor? Well, there was a brief moment. Yeah. Well, when I nearly became an actor, um, I, d I would have loved to have been an actor. I would still love to be an actor in yeah. many ways. But um, 
I was in the National Youth, Manchester Youth Theatre, then the National Youth Theatre. And, and when I was 17, I was approached by a casting agent for a movie. Um, what was it? Can you remember? Who, it was called Madame Suzatska. Right. Uh, and it was the royal film for 1989, I think. John Schlesinger directing, Twiggy and Dame Peggy Ashcroft starring. And they were looking for the young male lead, who was a young Indian kid who played the piano and could roller skate and they so they were looking for somebody who could play the piano and roller skate and they contacted manchester youth theater and they said we've got just the kid seriously um jeff sykes was it um it well yes it was actually. And, <laughs> um and so i ended up going through this audition process got to the last two went and met schlesinger and the musical director because there was a lot of classical piano in it and then lost out to a young actor called naveen chowdhury who then went on to do all sorts of things on Channel 4, like Teachers yeah, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and so it all fell away. And, and within, I think, three months, I'd got my job on TV. Right. And within about nine months, I was interviewing Naveen about the movie. How amazing. Yeah. Then what parts did you play? In the movie? Yeah. Or, or, or in... Well, no, in the youth theatre. In the youth theatre, I did um, the Caucasian Chalk Circle, a Brecht play. Um, and uh, and played the prince, Prince Kazbek. So you, you, I mean, you, you and had I did the, the music uh, for that as well. So you had the you had the bug, but not not to the degree where nothing else you could. have... Oh no no no! I mean no, I, I never pursued it, and I never, I mean, you know, I didn't even really think about drama school or anything like that because I think your because parents, I came from a family where <laughs> that wasn't going to happen. You <laughs> know, you could do it normally <laughs> then. So then, university, you also were there. I have to say, I I, I should have known more about your early days, but I, I was I was being a lot more cliched during this period of my life. You, you never stopped. You went off to Oxford and started presenting current affairs shows on BBC Two. You did East and Network East. Yeah. So how? I mean... I was working all the way through university. I mean, I basically did two days a week during the week. Which is just incredible. For the BBC. Right. And the re I mean, well, PPE, you know, is, I always joke, the only degree you could do while holding down a full-time job. Yes. And... So I used to go off and do this show for most, you know, for two days and then come back and do my 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 degree the rest of the time. And it was a very semi-detached existence, not uh, one I would recommend. Ah, uh, so you don't um, you didn't fully engage in student life. No, I didn't. And and I didn't enjoy Oxford as much as I should have done. Because of that. Because of that. And I didn't I didn't engage with all the things. You know, I wanted to go and do student politics and the yes. union and debating and drama and all those things that I had always imagined I would go and do, and I didn't do any of it because I was making TV programs. That wouldn't change it because no. if I hadn't done that, I wouldn't be doing this. But um, did you feel that? You feel that now? So you felt if I don't keep this ball in the air, it, it might it might not be there when yeah. I graduate. Cause, yeah, because it's a crazy industry in which yes. everything stops and the road is littered with people for whom you went. I wonder what happened to him. Yes. Uh, and I know lots of people who I worked with in those days. And they who, were good. Who I now say, yeah, I wonder yeah. what happens to them. Yeah, because it just didn't, the, the planets didn't align. Yeah. So three years working and studying. Well, I did it two years um, on this Asian programming unit, which was great. And I, used to, and I used to do the odd trip. I used to go to, you know, I covered the Pakistani elections and interviewed the Sri Lankan president and went to Kashmir in 1989 to cover the insurrection there. And, um, not insurrection, the... Um, uh, secessionist movement yes. um, and and then in my at the end of my second year my tutor said you've got to stop you're going right. to fail your degree um, or we're going to throw you out so you, you've got to stop all of this and so I said okay fine but then about a week later just before I was starting my third year I got a call from Newsround who said we'd love you to do Newsround um, 
and you can do it part time in your vacations and we won't bother you during term time and then you can go full time when you leave. So that's what I started doing. Best of both worlds. Then. Yeah. And so, you know, I, w I went to cover the Croatian war in the holidays before my finals, Easter holidays before my finals. Crikey. Um, <laughs> Newsround being iconic, you, you were aware of how yeah. iconic it was. Oh, very much. Up. Yeah, I grew it, up with John Craven. And that sort of relatively seamlessly slotted into the into the chair. Um, seamlessly, be the no, first, I be the think... first ethnic minority presenter on on children's television, let alone just news. Well, no, first, well, you could say first, you know, main presenter. There were other people. There were people like Terry Badu, yes, um, who were who were on Newsround, um, and uh, there was another one whose name I can't remember now. Um, but yeah, I suppose I was. I was the first person to have those the kinds of roles that I got, you know, um, before you know before that doing opens question. Certainly, I was the first eighteen year old I think to have a show on on BBC Two, and certainly the first Asian eighteen year old. Um, so, so yeah, but Newsround was a huge responsibility right. because you you were really filling a big set of shoes and a big institution, and the show was very much bigger than the individuals. And I learned a huge amount there. You know that the whole approach to journalism there was all about not assuming any knowledge and I've carried that with me ever since mm. and you know tr tried to tell stories in a way that is accessible and that people will understand even if they don't know all the background to everything. The I, I suppose silly question to ask at this point once you've become a newsroom presenter you graduated from university where, when would you have first applied the word famous to yourself? Would you have already have done it at that point? As a yeah, I think I would have done, but in a slightly jumped up way, probably. Because right. I think as soon as you become recognisable, and if you're doing a show like Newsround, which in those days used to get huge audiences. Well, this is what I mean. It, it, it's, millions of viewers. Compared to what happens now, it's on. you yeah. can't make a comparison. And it, we you? used to get more adult viewers. Our big boast was we used to get more adult viewers every day watching Newsround than watching Breakfast News and Newsnight put together. Is that right? And then add the children. Good grief. Um, so lots of adults used to watch Newsround too because they didn't understand the six o'clock news. Um, so I, I did used to get stopped a lot and recognised a lot. And um, I think the effect it had on me was was that I sort of became a television figure in my own mind. So mean? kind of, well, you know, I had to behave myself. Yes. And I had a, you know, the beginning of don't say the wrong thing, You've got to be impartial. You you know you can't go and speak in the Oxford Union debate on whatever it is because you can't say what you think anymore. Right. Did you find that um, tough? Yeah, yeah. And so sort of being, you know, on on show if you like, and having to live according to the BBC's set of rules, um, which were you know pretty strict in those days. I've been relaxed a bit now, but you know in those days were were not uh, very relaxed. Um, I think did have you know did have sort of an effect on me. I've been living in that slight straitjacket yes. for almost 30 years. Yes. And, and we now, we'll move on to this later, but we're now in a time where that, that tension between opinion and, and, and impartiality is, is almost reaching breaking point, yeah. I think. But, but as I say, we'll move on to that. But So you're on Newsround. You're pretty much a household name, if even if we're talking about an Ish. era where some might have struggled to pronounce your name. Yeah. But but you're very instantly recognizable for that generation. It's be the early nineties, so this is 
94. Yeah. Um, did you have ambition at that point, Krishnan? Because you, you, I am genuinely shocked by, I don't want to say effortless, because that would be offensive to you. And clearly your talent was being recognized. It's not like you were putting your hand up for stuff and just being given it all. But but most people in our game have, I mean, I was measuring inside legs yeah. on Regent Street when I got my break no, on No, I was on, on very Fleet charmed Street. at that stage. Yes. I was very, very lucky. Did you know? And Yes. I Are you think sure? I did you didn't just think it was that you were so special, it was happening <laughs> no, to no, you? No, 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 no. I didn't think I was special. And I knew, because I'd got to know people by that stage and I knew friends. And I'd see, already seen friends' careers, Yeah. you know, peaking and troughing and, you know, you're up one minute and then they forget you the next. Yes. So I knew television was a mad industry and in which there was no real rationale for why you would be picked and why you'd be promoted. And so equally, there would be no real reason why you'd be dropped. And so and that's always been my sort of approach, mm. you know, that, yeah, okay, you've done really well and you've gone from here to here and here, here to here. It's not because you're really good. It's just because you can do it. And so far people have said, okay, we'll go with him. Um, but I do also know so many people who are brilliant whose careers just stopped. Inexplicably. Yeah, so I, I didn't have that, I didn't I didn't have a sense of, oh, I'm brilliant. I, I knew how lucky I was. And I also all, always thought, well, this could just be over. So enjoy it while you can. Get as much out of it as you possibly can. And I still sort of have that attitude. Yes, Did you, you haven't mentioned the tap on the shoulder syndrome, that, that you were somehow winging it. A lot of people have that fear of being found no, out. I, di I didn't have that because I had that confidence. Yeah. Of, I, I could see basically what this job was. This job was to go into places and ask instinctive questions. Whether you're reporting from a location yes. or in front of a politician, it was basically my job to be the viewer um, or to be as many viewers as I possibly could be and ask a range of questions that they would want answering. And, and whether that meant talking to refugees in a refugee camp about their lives and telling people at home what was going on or trying to hold a politician to account, I, I just kind of thought, well, you, you, you've got to do the best you can and be their representative and do it for as long as you can get away with it. Have you had many major setbacks then? Have you had any big, what you'd call a, a kick in the teeth? Um, no, I mean, no, I mean, there are obviously disappointments along the way, but I mean, of things you might you know you, you you might have wanted to do that didn't quite work out or that you're you know or that you weren't promoted in a particular way at a particular time but no I mean I think you know to be still doing what I'm doing mm. after 29 years and still getting to you know talk to people when they'll actually come on Channel 4 News yes we're going um, to that. <laughs> uh, you know about you you know, talk, talk to people in power uh, <laughs> about what they're doing and to go around the world I mean my life has changed quite a lot I think because of the lack of accountability now in 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 the in those uh, amongst those in power, yes. I'm doing a lot more foreign travel, and I think I'm uh, and I'm doing more unreported world documentaries and more travel for the news, and so my life has changed a bit, uh, but I think only for the better, and it, it's always different. So you know. So when when you came to what did, did you move directly from Newsround to Channel Four? No, I went. Uh, sorry, I went from News. I left Newsround after three years. Everyone thought I was mad. And I applied for a job as an assistant producer on Newsnight because I wanted to get serious. I didn't want to go down children's TV's route. I had a go at presenting Going Live when Did Philip you? Schofield was off doing Joseph. And I'd been on Blue Peter as a guest and all those sorts of things. And it was great fun, but I knew it wasn't what I was going to be really good at. It's like thought, clothes that don't quite fit. You yeah, could, you, I thought I could probably get away with doing right. this for a bit. 
but it's not really me. Whereas I'm when I'm in serious. the news, when I'm on the news desk, this is, this is my comfort yeah, zone. Yeah, and you know, what I knew then, what really turned me on was foreign affairs and politics. Okay. And those were the two things that I really wanted to do. And if I wanted to do that, I had to get serious. And so Gosh. I wanted to go to Newsnight. And I was, um, I was uh, what, 24. Mm. Um, and this w- one friend from Newsround, we used to think of ourselves as kids yeah. in the BBC. As, yeah. So it wasn't the tap on the shoulder syndrome, but it was... God, we're getting away with this. You know, it's like we are we are the kids having fun in this really big grown-up news empire. And we used to be next door to Newsnight and downstairs, you know, upstairs from the newsroom. And we used to hang out with all these people and go to the BBC bar and talk about news and be on stories with them, but kind of very much thought we were the sort of the naughty kids. Sure. So we didn't think anyone would take us seriously. So I applied for a very lowly job on Newsnight, and they couldn't understand why, because they were saying, Well, you're gonna halve your salary and you're on TV, and why do you want to come and produce reporters? Mm. Um, and I said, well, because I know you're not going to put me on screen on Newsnight today, so I'll come and I'll come and you know uh, produce and research and. But you had an eye on people. a prize, it yeah. Was, it and was I a, said, yeah. my my aim is clearly for you to make me a reporter within a fairly short period of time, right? Um, and within a few months, they started letting me do my own reports. Um, but I had to do that. I had to take that step back to go forwards, and it took about three years before they actually made me a reporter. Then I did the launch of the BBC News Channel very mm. briefly. Did that for about seven months. And that was in the days when literally nobody was watching, but we thought it might be important at some point <laughs> in time. And then a colleague of mine who used to work with me on Newsnight, who'd gone to take over Channel 4 News, rang me and said, you really ought to be on TV. Um, so so, <laughs> so come, come over to Channel 4 and, and relaunch Channel 4 News. So that was 1998, and I haven't looked Been back. there ever since. Yeah. What, what would you have described? Well, okay, so in a way, you're doing the job now that you were doing in 1998. Um, it, it, it begs a question about ambition. What would your ambition have been in 1998 for where you would hope to have been in 2017? I didn't. I don't think I really had an ambition for 20 years down the road. Um, I, I knew that I wanted to do the kind of stuff that Channel 4 News was doing. I guess I thought... What do you um, mean? Well, just uh, explain to people what the distinction would be between a BBC show... Tough like- political interviews. Hmm. Um, news with attitude, uh, making trouble, getting up people's noses, uh, traveling the world, breaking stories, um, you know, th- that kind of thing is, is what I wanted to do. And I suppose I wanted to be, you know, one, one of the key front people on it mm. or, the, or the, the key front people person on it um, on, you know, one of those two or three shows that were doing it, which was Channel 4 News, Newsnight, the Today program. Yes. That was basically it. Uh, and those were my, so that was my ambition to do that, you know, to anchor a general election, to do David Dimbleby's job, all those sorts of things, the, you know, qu- the question time job. Mm. These are, there are, re- there are basically sort of five really great TV jobs in terrestrial TV and everybody's chasing them. And, uh, and that's what I wanted to do then. And, and those guys are still there now. Yes, of course. So, they are. so you, God, the, that's, that, that's that is still point, your ambition, isn't you know? it? But you're no longer a kid. <laughs> no, no, exactly. <laughs> I'm going to be overtaken. A grand by old else. man of, yeah. of, of of broadcasting. What? What? Just take you back to that difference between Channel Four and the BBC. Why can't? Couldn't you get up people's noses at the BBC? You could do the you foreign could. travelling. You could do the tough interviews, but there's a different flavour uh, to it. Well, you could. I mean, I think you could at Newsnight, um, yes. w- which is where I was and w- where you know well and. You could be difficult, but it was the BBC was such a big organisation. It was such a big bureaucratic beast. There were so many managers and so many layers of managers that every time you tried to do anything really controversial, 
um, you knew that there were going to be loads of people going over it. Yes. Uh, and and filtering things out and saying, oh, I'm not sure about It's that. astonishing how many like levels that. there are, yeah. isn't it? Whereas Channel 4 uh, news and, and places like Sky News are much more streamlined, much smaller, and you can just get things done. And, and if, if a bunch of you go, why don't we do this? The chances are you'll get to do it. Yes. So, you know, that, there's a joy to that. We don't have the resources of... Of, of the BBC and we can't just go and go wherever we want whenever we want we've got a finite amount of money to spend um, and and that does make a difference but generally if you can focus your ambition you can do what you want to do and you have yeah what did you mean when you you joked about politicians not coming on Channel 4 News which is fairly self-explanatory and then you talked about a decline in accountability well I think over the years it's just become easier for politicians to say no why because there are so many other ways for them to appear on TV. I mean, it used to be that you had to go and face, you know, Humphreys or whoever it was on the Today programme. Mm. You would do Channel 4 News, you'd do Newsnight, and those would be the big duffings up yes, of cabinet ministers on the TV, uh, where people were held to account. And these days, it's very easy for cabinet ministers to just turn out on the news channels, do a 30-second clip, do a doorstep, they call it, you know, where they'll go outside speak to the camera. It's an arranged doorstep where the journalist isn't really allowed to ask questions. They're not taking questions. They won't even allow people like me to go turn up to them. Mm. You know, if they ring up and say, we'll, we'll do a clip, and we, we'll often say, okay, we're going to send Krishnan. Yes. And they'll go, oh, no, you can't do that. You, you have to send a producer because um, we're, not, we're not doing a TV how, how do you, How do we push back then? Like, well, we, I mean, we, can I compare, would, we can compare notes yeah, on that I practice. Mean, I, I often, you know, and a lot of us often say we should just stop this pooling system yeah. whereby broadcasters agree to just allow politicians to say one thing to one camera and then everybody uses it. Um, and, and we should stop the, you know, giving them, a, uh, giving them platforms only when they want yes. them. I mean, basically, ch politicians these days get interviewed at election time or referendum, or you know, just big big moments. But they will avoid coming on uh, programs like ours for as long as they possibly can. We haven't had an interview with Boris Johnson in our studio since he became foreign secretary. Yeah. Um, and you know, and the only reason I've done the Home Secretary was during the referendum. Sure. So these are big people who we used to interview routinely and hold to account, and now they just don't because. They can get away with it because they can go and sit on a sofa. They can go and do the Sunday mornings. When they did can it go start? And do something cozy. Well, well, I don't. I know that you, you won't want to malign any individuals, but, uh, but do, you, do you not feel the Sunday morning politics programs are robust enough? You don't think that people? I think they're a different kind of robust. I okay. mean, they are. Um, they, you know, a Andrew Marr and Peston are brilliant minds mm. and are very good political interviewers, and they know what they want to do. But they're trying to do something different, and yeah. the, and the mood on a Sunday morning is different. You know, you don't want a big row on a Sunday morning. Um, on the whole, no. uh, and so you know, it's not the place where uh, they really get held to account. It's the place where it's discursive. They usually go on to announce something. They're going on with a purpose to reveal something usually, and that becomes the story of the day, and it gets repeated through the day. And they, that's how they set the agenda. And how, how fearful do you think they are of? Because you've, you've mentioned that you can go off and do foreign reports, or, or you can do you can fill Channel Four News with other stuff in a way that if you were doing that kind of show you, you, and people weren't coming on it anymore, the show would end. How, how conscious do you think the producers are of not scaring politicians off? Well, I think you have to be. Mm. I mean, uh, when I was at the BBC, when I was at the News Channel, I, I did an interview with uh, a cabinet minister that was a really robust, tough 10-minute 
um, duffing up. And I was called aside by a boss um, who, who said, you can't do that. They won't come back on. Gosh. And, and I said, well, that's ridiculous, because I'd just come from Newsnight, mm. uh, where the tradition was yes. completely opposite. And, uh, and, and I was very resistant to that and said, well, don't, you know, please don't ever say that to me, because I'm not going to by those compromises rules. compromises your um, sense, of, sense of integrity. Yeah, right? but I mean, you know, shows want access. Yeah, of course. And they, they will be aware of that in the way they treat their guests. And, you know, I've talked to spin doctors or former spin doctors about what's going on, and they say, you know, quite clearly, it's not in our interest. Why would we do it? Yeah, what, why, we, why what have we, we got to gain? You know, why would we spend an hour prepping our minister um, to come on and, and, and then risk them looking stupid when instead we can go and do a clip on Sky News and get our message out that way? I don't, I don't want to sound pompous, but that, that is, I mean, it has the seeds of a, of a democratic crisis, that kind of. I think it is. I think it's, I think it's really dangerous and... You know, I, I don't want to sound pompous about the role of television, but I do think um, broadcast interviews have been a way of holding politicians to account in yeah. a way that Parliament doesn't really do, mm. because you can do sustained questioning. You know, I've got friends who are MPs who say in, in select committees, the frustrating thing is that you only have a couple of minutes um, to, you know, to, to go for it, or, or, or in, across the dispatch box you get one question or two questions, uh, and then you have to, th then the minister moves on. So the television interview, I think, is absolutely vital tool, or the radio interview is a vital tool for democracy. And I think the idea that politicians now are uh, evading it is really dangerous and really bad, when, especially when, now when there are so many really important questions to ask. None of which are being answered. You know, I mean, I've, I've only interviewed David Davis once, and that was, again, during the election. Yes. Uh, and he was suddenly sprung on us five minutes before the interview and they said actually, you know, it was the night of the, the TV debate. Um, and he was there supporting Theresa May uh, or the debate that wasn't, you know. Yes. And uh, and so it's ridiculous that, you know, he is possibly the most important cabinet minister at the moment. And he's never never on the telly. No, no, he's never anywhere. Um, where, where would you date it to? Is it because, because you'll know more about this than me because you were already living in the in the business is it is it because breakfast television arrived within our adult lifetime so didn't it in britain we yeah. didn't really have it so frank boff and, and well that. no and well actually when we were kids but, well, when but, we were younger so yeah. that that's not the reason that it's no, changed then so it, it's, i think it started it started under the labor government where um certain ministers decided they just weren't going to do interviews remember john reed went through a pe period when he was home secretary yes where he just decided he wasn't going to do interviews and I remember saying this is ridiculous we haven't done john reed for six months um, and that right. was absolutely extraordinary. And was that Alistair Campbell's influence? Do I don't know. I don't know whose decision it was. But they, um, they obviously a penny dropped when they suddenly realised, well, he hasn't done anything for two months. Doesn't, and yeah. doesn't you know matter. What? It doesn't matter. Or, what are we, we going to do? Just go out there, bare our chest and invite people to fire arrows yeah. at us? And then I think the, you know, the, the coalition government really applied this because it was really hard for them because... You know, the, the potential for disagreement course, within the yes. coalition was so strong. They really didn't want many of their people out and about because they didn't want stories about cabinet splits and coalition arguments. So they, they put out the safe pair of hands, you know, and so we would always get Vince or we yeah. would get Danny Alexander or, you know, we, we wouldn't, we would very rarely get conservative ministers. They're like night watchmen in cricket, aren't they? They're, they're, they're never, they're never going <laughs> to swing at the ball, but they're always just going to... Keep it off the wicket. A bit, a bit like Michael Fallon was until his recent embarrassments. They'd send him exactly. out to kind of field these questions. Yeah. Do you get frustrated watching other people get a crack at some of the people you can't get a crack at and not 
I mean, I used to, um, but I mean, I know what the game is now. I mean, yes. I, I used to wonder why it was happening, but I know why it's happening. And, to avoid um, embarrassment, and to and avoid any potential pratfalls. You know, I don't wear it as a badge of honour, but I do think, well, I know why I bet you do a bit. There, you do a bit. And I know why they're saying no twice. You do a bit wear it as a badge I don't, because I'd rather they came on. Well, that, I'd but, really but, rather they came on. And they would if you adopted a different persona or a different manner. Who, who would you most like to have a crack at now? Who do you really feel keenly... Within within the British government? Most, yes. Let's start in Britain. Um, well, uh... <laughs> David Davis. David Davis, Boris Johnson. Yeah, and Gove, probably. And, yeah, Michael Gove to some extent, but Michael Gove is sort of... Because he's, he's not in one of the key ministries around Brexit... He's there to talk. Mm. You know, he, he is, he the, is new the, the, the night watchman, Fallon. isn't he? Yes. Do you um, do you understand why Brexit happened? Do you understand? I mean, you, presumably you were surprised by the result. <laughs> Have you um, come to any great insights since? Well, I sometimes feel a bit foolish about our surprise the day after, because I remember going back to David Cameron's speech when he said we are, we're, we're Eurosceptics. Mm. And he gave his big sort of Eurosceptic speech and let the genie out of the bottle. And I remember saying then, I think I even said it on Channel 4 News, we're on the road to Brexit, you know, not to Brexit, but we're on the road to leaving the European mm. Union. Because if we have a referendum, the British public will say they want to leave. And I felt very confident about that. And it was only when we got to towards the vote that I think we all got carried away with this, it, 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 it won't happen, surely it won't happen. Um, so the surprise of the next day, I feel a bit silly about because I think I, you know, I shouldn't have felt surprised. Mm. Um, as to why it happened, I think I think the extent of the split in opinion now is is a bit clearer. You know that it's it's really entrenched, and the split is still there, and. Uh, I don't think very much has changed in that split. No. And I'm very wary of, you know, what the influence of the media was. Yes. I mean, I'm not really sure what the... You can, you can, there are all sorts of theories about what the influence of the media was in that. Um, I'm not sure I, I'm not sure what I think of any of them um, or wh whether I believe in any of those sort of theories. Um, because, you know, if you do talk to people... and We talked to people throughout that campaign who told us... They wanted to leave. They'd had enough of immigration. We talked to immigrants who mm. said they'd had enough of immigration. Uh, and Asians who said they were voting for Brexit because um, they, they were sure that it would lead to more Commonwealth immigration. Um, and, you know, attitudes haven't changed that much. No, there they haven't. Some, you know, some, of the, some, of those, some of those people now say, I feel a bit duped, but, uh, but mostly they haven't. It's still early days. In this context here, of this conversation between you and I, you're still very wary of offering up a an opinion, aren't you? Yeah, I can't. That's interesting. I would be sacked because I, I, I mean, people will be surprised about that because the perception of Channel Four News, certainly from the right-wing newspapers, is that it's riven with opinion and and partiality. So, yeah, I mean, that's partly because we're we've had a conservative or conservative-led government for so long. So they obviously feel that we're against them. When Labour were in power, they hated us just as much. You know, if you talk to Alistair Campbell, who I think you've had on this show. Yes, yes. Um, about how they viewed Channel 4 News, they used to think of us as a pain in the neck as well. Um, but obviously we have a largely, you know, right-wing mainstream press 
And so some of them would like to describe Channel 4 News as liberal. And it's not, it's just that we, we you know, if you're the government, you're going to get a harder time than the opposition. Because you, you're in power. <laughs> yes, of course. And, and, and as you say, both sides should be equally irritated by what you do. Do you feel more irritated now at the straitjacket you described earlier, G given what's gone on? Because for me, Trump and Brexit have kind of changed everything. I've sort of gone through a journey on this one. I bet. Um, in that I, I think if you'd have asked me a year ago, yeah. I'd have probably said, yes, I do feel frustrated. Um, but I think I've come back round to cherishing regulated media and the need for it. Um, I, I went to America in the 2012 election to do a show about talk radio. Yes. And had, I went on all these talk radio hosts' programs from left and right, and we would argue about, you know, whether they, you know, whether we should have uh, that kind of media in Britain or whether our regulated system was something to cherish. Mm. And they all said, of course, it's ridiculous. You know, you're just lying all the time. You've got political opinions and you, you seep them in subliminally or not very subliminally into everything you do. And you should just be more honest about it. Um, and I would say, no, you know, it's very important that we try and serve everybody. And I think as politics has become more extreme and the stakes have seemed higher there have been times when you've gone you know if only i could say what i really think then i could i could change some people's yes. opinions it's not that's not my job no and, I, and i've come round background to, to saying you know what it's really important that we have a trusted bbc news a trusted channel 4 news a trusted itn news um, That's what you mean by regulated. So, yes. because what what has arguably made disrupted everything is is the unregulated that looked like it was regulated. It's why Donald Trump was so quick to portray real news as fake news. Because yeah. then, when it starts reporting the stuff he's now dreading, he hopefully will be able to spike the guns of of reality by having this fake news idea in people's heads. It's also really hard to compare America with Britain because because sure. while Trump attacks CNN, and we might regard CNN as the closest thing to the kind of news we have. Mm. There is actually no law that says CNN has to be, you know, impartial. No, it's a commercial Whereas decision. Whereas in Britain, we are legally required to be impartial. <coughs> um, and, and, and that's on the TV. And that's a really important thing because I think if we, we, and we are losing trust among some people at the edges, both on the right and the left. Mm. And I think that's a real problem for us. And we've got to get them back because, um, there is a value in truth and in fairness that we've got to hold on to. And, and there so is you, a space for people with opinion, but you've got to also have something that strives to be impartial. Do, do, do some programmes strive too hard to be impartial? I, I always wonder whether if Galileo was alive today, you'd have him with his telescope showing you how the, uh, the, the, the Earth revolves around the sun and not the other way around. Yeah. And then you'd have to bring on Nigel Lawson to explain why actually it is the other way around. And here's... There's a little bit of that. I mean, oh, it's not six of one, uh, you know, and half a dozen of the but other. But it is on programmes like the ones you've described, not so much Channel 4 News, but certainly on the Today programme and, and on Newsnight, there is this sense that you have to give, and in the referendum, very much on the economics arguments. Yeah. You gave equal weight, yeah. even though, you know, it, it was probably 90% to 10% among economists, professional economists, you had to treat them equally. I think I think what we've got to learn from um, the last few years is that impartiality doesn't mean equal time yeah. for everything. But we haven't learned this yet. And 
Well, I think we're getting there, but I think it's very hard for, you know, it's very, very hard for the BBC. Sure. Because it's a it's a huge beast to move. And because um, objection and complaint is orchestrated. Yeah. It's man- I mean, it's and done all, on an industrial we, it, scale. It, it belongs to us all. So everybody yes. has an opinion and everybody has the right to say, no, you can't do that um, because I pay for you. Mm. Um, but I, th- I think we are getting, I, I think, you know, I think, you know, more broadly, we are kind of, we've, we've understood that on climate change, you know, you don't have to give equal weight to every opinion on um, on, on, on race, you know, all, all these things, you know, there is such a thing as um, it's duly impartial. You know, the, the, it's rather boring. It's sort of not regulations. boring. You might think it is, but, but it's, um, it's probably the most important thing it's, happening it's, in the British media. It's, it's not, we don't just have to be impartial, we have to be duly impartial. Right. And that doesn't mean we have to give the BNP the same amount of time as the Conservative Party. We don't, because they are not due that level of uh, of, 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 of airtime because they don't command that same kind of opinion within the country. So um, it's it's not it's not just clock watching. Right. It's it's about saying the coverage should broadly reflect how people voted before and where opinion is now. Um, and I think more importantly, I think what what I'm saying is rather than the sort of the uh, you know the need just to sort of be fair for the sake of it is yeah. If people don't trust us anymore, if they don't want to watch us anymore, then we, we will just be preaching to this smaller and smaller group of people like us, and and that's a real you know problem. And w- whenever I've approached an interview, I've tried not you know I have I, it's very different to your approach, I suppose, which is which is very honest. I I try and sometimes approach from that side, sometimes approach from that side, try and keep people guessing, because you know I don't want people on one side of politics to say I know where he's coming from right um, and that he doesn't speak for us because I want them to feel that I am on their side as well yes. and that I will hold politicians to account for them just as much as the other side um, that they might expect of course and 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 what's odd is that it's not impossible to be that person and yet when you read a Paul Dacre editorial about bias and Channel 4 bias at the daily uh, 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 at the BBC, he, people like that seem to find impartiality impossible. They they can't imagine ever not somehow smuggling their views into a journalistic encounter. So they presume everybody else is like them. Yeah, I it's think. a totally different approach to journalism. Yeah, yes. a totally different approach to what they're trying to do. Um, and so they they fundamentally don't understand what we're trying to do. So how far to the extremes? Because you're right. I mean, the the, the sort of Corbyn um, uh, hard conservative dichotomy is fascinating. They, they, they sometimes, in their attitude to what they call mainstream media, they seem to have more in common with each other than they do with anybody on the middle ground. So how far out to those extremes do you reach to the hard left and and the far right? Because if you want them to feel represented, you want them to feel involved, you end up inviting some quite um, uh, well, extreme views into the studio. Well, I think um, it's, it's about numbers, isn't it? I mean, the extreme views on both sides of politics are held by relatively small numbers of people. But I think what the media probably didn't do very well um, in in the Corbyn phenomenon is understand how many people were really annoyed Mm. and felt alienated and felt misrepresented and felt that this sort of mushy middle ground didn't speak for them. And I think, think, you know, we we didn't really see that. And um, and didn't really realise sort of how vocal they are yeah. and, and how powerful they can be. And 
so I think we've got to stop them going off to just read their own media. Yes. You know, you don't want them just saying, well, I'm just going to read the Canary no. um, from now on. You, you got properly up Corbyn's nose in, yeah. in 2015. Yeah. The producer's written here, Corbyn properly loses his shit in this interview. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he lost his temper. And this was the Hamas Hezbollah his question. Yeah, um, and you'll which, which everyone was talking about at the time. Exactly, it wasn't a surprise. No, um, and he should have had an answer for it. And which is what I said to him afterwards mm. when he was, you know, uh, uh, you know, he was sort of uh, crossing. You asked him about being friends with. Prescribed. I asked him. I asked him, you know, whether he really was friends yes. with, uh, and he wouldn't answer. He wouldn't answer. And we carried on, and then he, then he finally gave an answer, which basically sort of said, you know, no. And I said, well, if you just said that in the first place, we would have wasted that five mm. minutes. Mm. Um, good TV, though. It was it was good TV. Do you have that voice in your head? That this is good TV? Yeah. Yeah, of course. Sure. You know, yes. But it, it wasn't just good TV. No. I mean, I, that was the accusation from them. Right. Tabloid I journalist. See. Yes. Just going for good TV and wants to have a row. But you it wasn't about it. It was actually revealing what, he, what his whole mindset was. Mm. And I think it was quite revealing because he hasn't done it since. You know, he's totally changed his... Approach to, to, to interviews. He, he's you know, more managed than almost anybody else, but but, but he, he, you still hard to get access to him. Have you had him back since then? I I had him on for the Labour leadership debate right. that followed that, but then the Labour Party wouldn't do a leadership debate for the second Labour leadership election on Channel Four News, um, and I haven't had a Jeremy Corbyn interview since. Don't know whether he's deliberately avoiding me or not. But you know he hasn't done me. He hasn't done much, but no. It's it's again. Why would they? They're just sitting tight, watching the what 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 happens to the polls and um. And I yourself. think also there's a sort of a certain extent to to uh, those people who do do them are also aware of the hugely vocal uh, Jeremy Corbyn army. Yes. <laughs> so which... I mean, after that interview, I mean, you know, uh, for and still, you know, I still get. Facebook posts about that interview and they're, they're, they're an interesting bunch they're, they're, because for me it was the, the kind of UKIP contingent that were the most uh, angry historically but then when you cross the Corbynites the, 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 there are comparisons and they're both going to be offended by this observation because they would both swear blind they're nothing like each other but that the level of personal vitriol Laura Kunzberg probably has taken more from the Corbyn side than anybody else has but I'm it's, sure she has. Yeah. It's, it's, it's that's a relatively modern phenomenon the idea of, of journalists being fair game for for that kind of abuse I ne I, well the thing i never knew is how many unpleasant people there were <laughs> no thank you god know, for I've, social media <laughs> i've always thought that you know i mean when i grew up i always thought there was a proportion of people who who would be racist towards yes. me or would not like me um but i think i quite i find it quite surprising the number of people who are not just uh, unpleasant towards me, but towards other people. Yes, you know, it's almost as a hobby, almost as, a, as yeah. an act of enjoyment. It's uh, it's strange, uh, and it, it's driving, it's moving from social media slightly into mainstream media, which is evinced when yes. when people get attacked yeah. for essentially doing their job and politics. Yes, yes. Um, are you optimistic about Britain at the moment? Um. I think I am basically optimistic because I think... You're quite a cheerful fella, aren't you? Yeah. yeah. Um, well, I, I basically think people are good. Right. Um, most people. Yes, of course. And want good things. And we all, and, and most people want good outcomes. Uh, and even most politicians kind of basically want the same thing. But uh, so I kind of think whatever madness we might be going through... Uh, most people still want stability, progress... 
economic growth, fairness, yes. you know, all those sorts of things. The, the, the thing that scares me is that I think we may have lost the ability to deliver some of it. You know, that our, our, our politics may have reached a point where it just doesn't really know how to deliver fairness. Um, and and that that's a real problem going yes. forward. But I, I, I'm, I don't think, you know, that because we've got Trump in America, because we've got all sorts of uh, very vocal... I, I don't like the word extreme, but hardline movements. Sure. You know, in in this country, that that's the way everything's heading. We're all heading towards madness, and we'll all be polarized, and we'll all be, you know, you're on one team or another, and then it's all going to lead to the world exploding. I don't think it will, because I think most people just kind of want to get on with life, yes, and have stability and progress and 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 prosperity and be outward looking. So, what what do you want to get on with? What's next for you? It's a very long time to have been doing the same job, but you're you're <laughs> right. Well, but you're right to remind us that actually some of the older people, twenty years older than you, are still in the jobs that exactly. they were doing when yeah. you started. I don't. I mean, I, I don't. I don't have a plan. Um, so, and the great thing about our job is that it is always different. Yes, every day. You know, so you can't be bored of what we do now because the world is crazy and it's fascinating, and you're going from terrorist attacks to wars to Grenfell to politics to Brexit to you know general elections and implosions of political parties so um, you know I have absolutely no desire to do anything different at the moment um, what, what I've really enjoyed I think over the last five years is doing um, more considered stuff every mm. so often I wouldn't want to do it all the time but every few months I get to go off and make an unreported world documentary somewhere you know, far away that I would never normally get to. Burma this year, Mexico this year, Yemen last year, um, to make something important um, where I don't need to think about the daily grind of getting the news out or filing or the nonsense of Twitter or any of that. I could just get away for two or three weeks, make one really important story, bring it back. So I think that's the thing I've really enjoyed doing over the last five years. So I'd like to do more of that. Do you think the world wants more of that? Do you sense that the, yeah, I we've think, had this period of very short attention span, which seems to be coming to a natural end now? People yeah. seem to want a bit more nourishment. I never really bought the short attention span thing. No, I mean, because, you know, the people I know aren't like that. Yes, you know, fair enough. <laughs> even yeah, they want to read like a long that. article, they want to watch yeah. a proper... So the, 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 the three-minute culture was all or the three second culture whatever it was was always other people and it's always this sort of patronizing attitude towards yes of course it is. these thick people yes. who consume yes. the media that we produce i don't know who they are i don't know you know my friends aren't like no, that no, no. but I, you know all, the, all the poor for, people making television for people that we are not. they're not very clever yes of um, course. so I, I never really bought into that um i think actually if you look at what's going on on youtube and facebook now it's longer videos that people are watching we're actually making longer versions of our news stories to put on social media not shorter versions um you know we had a yes that's interesting um so we we quite often now put together two or three days coverage into a 20 minute piece and put it on youtube as a special and say watch this this will tell you what happened about you know the Manchester bombing or whatever it might be. That that is there a fear of a another gulf. So you've got the generational gulf that's happening now. Historically, it's a political gulf. People who really, really want to 
It's the more you learn, the less you understand, don't you, I think, as a general rule. And yet that appetite to learn is what pushes people into long-form documentaries and into reading proper articles. And yet the more you do that, the less certain you are of your opinions. There's two types of people around now. The people who've got really, really certain opinions, who, I, I, I mean, at risk of falling into the trap that you've just described, who don't often understand why, but they've found a hook on which to hang yeah. their coat and they're never going to take it off because... It's too scary to contemplate. And then you've got people who run the risk, perhaps, of just searching too much for a, for a position to take. Yeah, I mean, you don't want to you don't want to end up at sea about everything. No. Uh, and I think... Um, Look at Aung San Suu Kyi, Suu Kyi at the moment. That, the, the, the idea she was a good person and now she's arguably a war criminal. It's, it's, it's hard to... I mean... Well... <laughs> arguably. Yeah, I mean, is she a war criminal? Uh, you, I think that was it's a hard one to argue. I mean, yes. I, I was in Burma this year I know. asking precisely that question. Um, I think that's the, in a way, that's the trouble. That yeah. we, we, we yeah, require yeah, yeah. her yeah. if she's not a saint to be a war criminal. Yes, of course. Where the truth is, she's a flawed, weak politician who doesn't have the power she wants to do what she wants to do and probably has some, some you know, she probably has some nationalism in there herself. Uh, which taints her view of yes. the Rohingya. It's does that make her a war criminal? Well, you know, probably not in the court of law. Um, we want everything to be so clear. We do, don't we? And the world isn't clear. No, and the more that long form journalism is popularised, the the less demand there'll be for everything to be clear and yeah. binary and simply nailed down. Did, did you ever fancy politics? Because it's interesting for me. There's a certain type of character that, that, that theatre or, or, or Drama, journalism, and politics were like three points of the same triangle, and yeah. we know that you had two of them. Did you? No, I did. I was I, very. You know, I, 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 did, I did fancy politics, and um, basically, as soon as I became a journalist, it was like, well, you've chosen that now. Yes. You can't. You can't go into journal into politics, and those journalists who did go into politics could never go back. Yes, and politics has become such an unappealing. It has, hasn't place. it? Why do you think that is? Well, because uh, I think. Oh God, it's really complex. That because um, so we're near the end, so don't worry. You can have, you can have a rest afterwards. I, <laughs> I think. Well, I think partly because the public has such a low opinion of politics. Yes. Partly because the quality of politicians seems to be lower than yes, it was. It does. I think it? you know people who can afford to go into politics now um, are relatively few and far between. Mm. So you have this weird squeeze. You have you have people who are very rich at the top who can, who are going into politics almost just for power or just for fun. Uh, and then you have, um, you know, people for whom, you know, a, a political life is, you know, uh, a huge ambition and they strive for it and all the rest of it. You've got a lot of people in the middle now who, who just don't go into politics now, but who would have done. Perhaps should have done. Yeah, um, because they don't, you know, they don't want their lives to be... Um, Torn apart. Torn apart mm. and ruined and poured over and accused of being uh, criminals all the time. Yes. And so, I, th you know, I think politics is going through a sort of a really bad phase. Um, but hopefully some people, I mean, I've got some friends. I've always had friends who were sort of either thinking about politics sure. or going into politics or whatever. I've got a couple of friends now who are motivated, I think, by the last couple of years saying, no, I, I do need to stand up. And I've thought about it from time to time, but I, I've, I've, I just don't see a tribe. No, fair enough. You know, yes. <laughs> that I want to be part of. Of course. 
And and while politics is the way it is, um, how could you have power? There's no point going to politics unless you've got power to change things. You know, and and, and so I, I've always sort of had that attitude. Unless you're going to be, unless you're going to actually wield wield the decisions, then there's no point in just going in to just shout. No, we've got you've got a better platform to to do that, not to shout an opinion necessarily, but to inform debate and follow yeah. follow w w where you are now. Let's let's end away from politics then, because it, it occurs to me that when people watch this or listen to it, the algorithms will kick in and a couple of your greatest hits might pop up on YouTube and in other places. So why did Robert Downey Jr. call you a syphilitic parasite? <laughs> um, oh God, um, why did he, well, what happened with that interview? was it came after the Quentin Tarantino interview which had also which had also gone yeah. viral but which you know which had some of the movie studios a bit wary of me but not sure you know. uh, and so they 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 I got an email a couple of days before that interview saying what's this interview going to be about normally I don't respond to those sorts of uh, requests, but because of the Tarantino thing, I where you asked for people who don't know, you asked Tarantino whether he felt responsible for real violence by portrayal or, or well, the link. Said, the said, link is between, there a link between yes. violence, real violence? He didn't want to have that conversation. He got very angry and lost his temper, and it went viral. Yes. And he, he said, "I'm <laughs> shutting your butt down," and everybody loved that phrase. <laughs> and and it went mad. Um, he, I think he, I've since heard that he didn't think he'd handled that particularly. Well. <laughs> um, <laughs> But I, so I, I went into that interview basically. So I, I, I responded to this email from a producer saying, "It's Robert Downey Jr. Of course, we want to hear the story of how he went from drugs and prison to yes. being the most bankable movie star in the world, and we'll talk about Captain America." Hmm. And that's how I went into that interview. I think that message was never passed on to him. So he just so he, expected Captain. He America. just expected a you know a, 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 a junket interview with people blowing smoke up his ass, and he didn't get it. The thing is, I wasn't the only person he walked out on. Um, but you don't hear about the other one. No. I mean, the, the one of his assistants came in before the interview started. The, the room was like a fridge. It was 17 degrees, and they'd had to bring in an extra air conditioning unit. And I, I said, this is ridiculous. It's horribly freezing cold. And they were saying, no, it's for him. He's, you know, this is what he likes. Uh, and I said to the flunky, are you sure? This is so uncomfortable. It's not pleasant at all. Um, and she said, you don't want him to walk out, which is what he did last week. Um, so I don't know who it was he walked right. out on, but whoever whoever that was um, didn't go viral. Didn't reveal it because <laughs> so they kept it in the can. What happens in that yes. is 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 the the bosses come in and say, well, this obviously isn't going to wear, is it? And yeah. you go, oh yes, it is. <laughs> and they say, well, how can how can we stop it? And you say, well, you can ring the boss of Channel Four for all I care. He'll tell you the same thing as me. Um, which is which is I mean part of the reason why you love your job because an awful lot of people who who, who are journalists don't have the. They don't. They don't have the support, do they? Yeah. Like, you, you, you pissed off Robert Downey Jr. We're going to take his side, exactly. which is what would that have happened happen. in a, a lot of yeah. sofa-based. I mean, I actually hate the Robert Downey Jr. thing uh, in in that because of social media, it's it's one of the most watched things I've done. Yes. And yeah, I can see why that would annoy you. It's such a small part <laughs> yes, of, of my course career. it is. Of course it is. It's, it's like it's it's this sort of ridiculous twenty minutes out of. Um, my uh, out of work work which are, where, where well, I really don't do the, that kind that's of thing. the nature of the beast though, yeah. isn't it you don't get to decide you don't what, get to decide and so uh, and so people now always ask about it and, and always want to know and you kind of think okay fine and the other one is um after robert downey jr well it's robert downey jr quentin tarantino and uh and and to, and to some degree um uh, uh jeremy corbyn and i have a well, no i was problem. thinking i was thinking of richard aoardo 
Oh, which I oh I, well, that's totally different. I know, but, but it's yeah. still brilliant. It's still yeah, absolutely no, I, riveting. I love that. Interview. What happened? I do as well. But what happened? I mean, pe- people will go away and watch it after they've heard you describe what happened. I quite like the idea of, of sowing that seed. Um, well, some people get it and some people don't. Got is, the, is the thing with that yes. interview, and some people yes. realise that this was a <laughs> joke, joke, a jokey conversation on live TV about a book that isn't really a book. You know, uh, Richard Iowadi doesn't really do interviews about himself. No. He's, he hates talking about himself. He'd written a book that wasn't really an autobiography. And so this was an interview that wasn't really an interview. It was meta. It was, <laughs> it was, it was, meta. Way, it was way beyond <laughs> what we should have done, I suppose. But uh, because because a lot of people didn't really understand it. No, um, they thought it was a horribly uncomfortable encounter with yeah. someone who really didn't want to be there. But as soon as you ask the question, why is he there? You should have realised that that wasn't what was going on at all. And he was he was there and he was being interviewed by me because he'd actually asked if he was coming on Channel 4 News, could he be interviewed by Oh, me? lovely. And he wanted to talk eventually about the Quentin Tarantino interview. Which okay, which you to. did. Yes, and of course, having seen... So I think I was probably just the straight man. For I was going to say, having seen you play yourself in Shaun of the Dead, he'd have known that you'd be the perfect straight man for the uh, exactly for the purposes. Um, that's it. We're out of time, Christian. That was an absolute pleasure. It thank really you for was. having me on. No, thank you. And I am joined now for the customary post-match analysis by Evan, the head honcho here at Joe. I, 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 I with with Christian and with June Sarpong, they were the two that I've been most worried about not knowing what to say but crikey there was no danger of running out of material with him was it no danger at all it's quite the quite the bromance there at the start. <laughs> very sweet um yeah it was great it's kind of fascinating Isn't um it? his role i guess is as, a, as an observer i guess, i think of, yes. of well britain and the world throughout the last whatever how long his career is, he has is it long, doesn't it all oh, there's a book there actually we should have ended with that shouldn't yeah we? he's got to have a book in him but it's just an interesting position he holds where you know he was very guarded about giving his I found that fascinating because yeah. I've, I've had to make a decision myself with regard to BBC yeah. news presenting I can't do it until the issues that I feel very strongly about have been settled mm. and, and I had that conversation with him before he came on air but I hadn't realised just how seriously he took it necessarily so as he said yeah, himself if I offered a strong opinion now I'd be fired yeah that was fascinating I actually was thinking when he said that I was like could you if you couldn't take that. You couldn't no, do that. I couldn't. Not at this point in British history. Hopefully in five years' time when everything's calmed down, I can go off and do question time. But can you understand his <laughs> Totally. Position? Better now than I could before the interview. Yeah. Because he, he quite rightly sees his role as being the arbiter, rather like the fulcrum on the scales, if you like, rather than being a weight on, e- on either side of them. And there's a few people in the game who I really respect who hold that view. But equally, I can't mention names because I'd be betraying confidences, but a couple of very, very senior household name BBC journalists, when I confided in them that I'd come to a fork in the road about impartiality and opinion, they, they said to me, don't lose your voice. Mm. Don't, don't lose your voice. Right. But we'll we'll wait till we get to episode eighty before I reveal who oh, they no. were. Okay, well, <laughs> look forward to that. And he's fascinating on on. I mean, we ended there with Tarantino and Danny yes. Jr. That's brilliant. brilliant I, I, it was an astonishing exchange. All yeah. three of them are worth yeah. are worth digging out. But I can see why it pisses him off a bit that, yeah. that Robert Downey Jr. meltdown is probably the the, the, the on social media, which is in a, in a sense it's posterity for our kids' generation. That's going to be the thing that. He's the guy. Bigger, who, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, um, that was great. Really, I enjoyed it. Was a good guy. listen. Fantastic. Yeah, good, yeah. Good. And he's he's a really interesting guy, and and, and just talks so eloquently about it and his career. That strange thing where his career, it seems, it, it seems almost accidental, but obviously he's been doing yes, it so long. But so it's long. just, and I couldn't just, believe the Manchester youth that 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 
if anyone ever interviews me, that was the seminal summer of my life, 1988 in Manchester, as a, as a Catholic monastic boarding school boy who was frightened of girls and certainly didn't know how to talk to them. That that I, d- I had no idea he'd done it through two or three oh, years well, previously. There's podcast eighty one there. I, I, I'm going to put it. I'm going to put that interview on the on the Manchester Youth Theatre yeah. Facebook page. We'll look forward to that. This is Unfiltered with James O'Brien, exclusively on Joe. Brought to you by the London Block Exchange, the official home of cryptocurrencies.